Good morning, Trails. My name is Jim Bridges. I am one of the elders here. They often tell me that I am the elder elder at our church. It has nothing to do with my high and exalted ecclesiastical authority, but my age, I'm afraid. But regardless, I'm the elder elder. Um, open your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 24. And like Matt and so many different families this morning at the Trails, 27 families at the Trails this morning. After four weeks in the pasture, With the sheep, we're headed to the mountains. And this morning, we're going to look at a tale of two mountains, both called the mountain of God, but both looking very, very different, depending on your perspective. So please stand with me this morning for the reading of today's text, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. And as Matt reminds us every week, and may we always remember, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Please be seated. What a wonderful text to walk through this morning. As we look at these two mountains this morning, we will spend most of our time in the first half of this psalm. And I want to break the message up into three parts and three points. The first point, we'll look at the power of God in verses 1 and 2. Then the holiness of God in verse 3. And our third point will be finally the grace of God in verse 4. Now, there are countless ways for us to talk about and reflect on the power of God, aren't they? We can look at God's power as demonstrated in His miraculous works, from the power to part the Red Sea, to the power to pull down the walls of Jericho, to the power necessary to raise Christ from the dead. We could also look into our own lives, each of us individually, reflecting on the times that the power of God has been manifest in the glory and the grace and the mercies and the blessings that we see. But in these first two verses of Psalm 24, David points us to the power of God by looking at the vastness of his creation and the extensive breadth of his ownership and dominion over it. There is nothing in creation that is not his. In Psalm 50, God tells us, again through his prophet David, that every animal is is God's. Every animal of the forest is God's that he knows every bird in the mountains, and that even the insects in the field are mine. It is in Psalm 50 where we find the famous verse telling us that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But here in Psalm 24, David makes a broader ownership claim for God. God owns all the cattle, and all the everything, and all the hills, and all the everything, and all the earth. It is all his. Why? How? Well, because God made it. David says here he founded it on the water and established it on the seas. And this reminds us, doesn't it, back to the third day of creation in Genesis 1, where God ordered the waters to separate and the dry ground to appear. God has ownership of the earth and everything in it because he has the power to create and the power to sustain. It is a power that we cannot comprehend. Now, 
I was at the beach a few weeks ago with my family. My brother-in-law, Jamie, made the statement that there were more planets in the universe than there were grains of sand in the world. Now, it was a great and sandy setting in which to make that bold statement. And while my brother-in-law is an expert in Aggie football, and he was smart enough to marry my beautiful sister, he is not known as a leading thinker in the world of astronomy. No offense, Jamie. More planets in the universe than all the tiny little grains of sand on all the beaches and all the deserts and all the sand traps on all the golf courses in all the world? I've bit my tongue, but I vowed to research more. Okay, who is with me? Team planets. More planets? Not a few. More sand. That's what happened in the first service. We had a lot more sand votes. Well, thankfully, or oddly, depending on your perspective, researchers researchers at the University of Hawaii have attempted to calculate the number of grains of sand in the world. Now, I won't bore you with the process, the research process, but I will say that their estimate is that there are 7 million, million, million grains of sand in the world. That is 7 with 18 zeros behind it. That is a lot of sand. Thankfully, uh, other researchers have looked and said, and while research numbers will vary, of course, Scientists estimate that the universe that God spoke into the existence but the word of his mouth contains 10 million, 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 million planets. That is 10 with 24 zeros behind it. That means not just that there are more planets than grains of sand, but there are more than a million planets for every grain of sand in the world. I've been thinking about this for a while, and it's still absolutely boggles my mind. And I know in the first service when I made that point, there was a lady over here who was shaking her head, and I thought, oh, she's either really boggled or she's disagreeing with me, and I'm, it's, it scared me. So uh, like anybody could ever know that, right, Napoleon Dynamite? Like anybody could ever know that. That's a lot of sand. Our finite minds cannot comprehend these kinds of numbers, that vastness of creation. And so I must stand before you all, confess that my brother-in-law was right. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it along with 10 million, 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 million planets on the seas, and he established it on the waters. Now, it is possible for us to have too small a view of God, to worship or admire or acknowledge something less than this, but it is impossible to have too large a view of God. Our minds are just not capable of that. So what do we do, what do we take from this examination of ownership and creation in these first two verses? Why do you think that David starts this psalm that way? Well, sure, I think David wants to remind us of who God is and what God has done. He worships a creator whose expansive power extends beyond our ability to understand. Spinning a universe into existence with only the word of his mouth, a universe with more planets than grains of sand, But I think he uses these thoughts on the creative power of God and his ownership to move our hearts toward a deeper consideration of the infinite difference between God and us. The difference between the creator and the created to point to the holiness of God. In front of us every minute of every day in his creation and in this book, we see over and over and over again that God is different than us. He is other. He is holy. 
Now, the first person who ever tried to assemble a canon of Christian scriptures was a heretic. That's right, the very first list we have of which letters and which gospels are to be counted as the inspired word of God was put together by Marcion in 140 AD. Satan did not wait long to inject heresy into the church. John, the apostle John, had not even been dead 40 years when the heretic Marcion created his list. So what made Marcion a heretic? Why did the church excommunicate him in 144 AD? Well, because Marcion had trouble with the God of the Old Testament. Couldn't accept that. The God of judgment, damnation, fire, thundering black clouds of terror. He could not accept that this was the same God as the God of the New Testament. The God of love and compassion and mercy. So old Marcion did what some of us may have been tempted to do from time to time. He just cut out the bits of the Bible that he didn't like. He threw away the entirety of the Old Testament, discarded all of the Gospels except parts of Luke, and kept ten epistles, all written by Paul, in his mind, the only true apostle of Jesus. As heresies go, this was a pretty big one. But thankfully, Orthodox Christianity and certainly the Trails Church have a larger view of God. We view God as both a God of judgment and mercy, a God of holiness and of grace. And with that thought in mind, let's have a closer look at verse 3 of our text. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? So when you think mountain of God, what comes to mind? Do you think of Julie Andrews spinning in that beautiful meadow, peace, and uh, opening, the opening scenes of the sound and music? Is that what comes to mind? Or do you think of the dark, foreboding, fearful Mount Sinai where Moses visited God twice and received the covenant on tablets of stone written by the finger of God? Well, the book of Exodus tells us about those events in chapter 19, and it paints a picture of a holy God whose glory must not be defiled by sinful man. But let's allow God himself to describe that scene at the first mountain in our tale of two mountains. From Exodus 19. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. Moses describes the scene himself a little few verses later. He says, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. You can almost see the heretic Marcion ripping these pages from his Bible. It sounds scary, frightening, altogether different. It sounds holy. And I can tell you, had I been there, I would not have been warned to stay away from that mountain. That is not the kind of mountain I wanted to ascend. You know, mountains are a big player in Scripture. We've got the, they appear often both literally and figuratively. We've got your Mount Ararat, Mount Moriah, Mount Sinai, the Sermon on the Mount, the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Transfiguration, big player mountains. But I want to draw your attention to a mountain that you may have never noticed, one that offers a great parallel to our passage today, the Mountain of Eden. 
Quizzical, quizzical looks, the mountain of Eden. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first was thinking about this and to think about the Garden of Eden, I think of a nice, beautiful, peaceful, bountiful, flat piece of land. That's the way the pictures in Sunday school always appeared, right? But what do we really know about the topology of the garden? Well, we know from Genesis 2.10 that a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And from there, it's separated into four headwaters, and they were some pretty significant headwaters. And what do we know about the direction that water flows? Flows downhill. So perhaps there was a bit of elevation there in Eden as well. But thankfully, we have more evidence than just this topographical reading between the lines. The prophet Ezekiel was likely speaking of Satan in chapter 28. He says this, You, Satan, were in Eden, the garden of God. You were on the holy mount of God. And a few verses later, he says, So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. Interesting, right? Mount Eden. Now, reclassifying Eden as a mountain in our minds is hardly a theological hill to die on. Get it? Mountain, hill to die on. I worked on that a long time. But it does offer an interesting parallel to the mountain situation we're looking at here in Psalm 24. Mountain or not, the garden was a place of perfect fellowship with God and his creation. Adam and Eve walked with God in sinless communion. This is the second mountain in our tale of two mountains, a mountain of joyous, perfect communion with God. But we know that Satan was not the only one cast off this mountain of God, this garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were sent away too. In an instant of disobedience, their clean hands were made dirty and their pure hearts became impure. Their sin, their prideful desire to be like God, all of this led to a holy God no longer being able to be in their presence. David describes the requirement of this fellowship with God in verse 3 and 4 of our text. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. That's why Adam and Eve were cast from the garden, from the mountain of the Lord, and that's why the flaming sword was put in place to prevent their return. That's the reason for the thunder and the lightning and the earthquakes and the warnings to the people of Israel not to approach Mount Sinai. A holy God is there, and you are a people of unclean hands and impure hearts. And when the impure approaches the pure, when the unholy approaches the holy, there is death. So how do we cross this gap? How do we get back to that beautiful, peaceful mountain of God? How do we restore right fellowship with him and ascend his holy mountain? According to David, we just need these four simple things. We need clean hands. Be sinless in all that you do. We need a pure heart. Be sinless in all you think. We need not to trust in idols. Don't ever allow anything to get ahead of your devotion and love to God. Tim Keller speaks of this often saying, don't allow the good things, jobs, financial security, relationships, don't allow the good things to become ultimate things. And fourth, do not swear by a false God. The ESV says, do not swear deceitfully. Be pure and clean and truthful in all you say all the time. Just those four things, got it? David tells us we got to get those right perfectly. We can ascend the mountain of God. The trouble is, we just can't do it, can we? It's not possible. And why is that? Well, it's because of our parents, right? It's our parents' fault. Not good old mom and dad. My mom's watching today. Hi, mom. 
Not good old mom and dad, although, as I was thinking about this, I do think you will get extra credit for those of you that bring this point up at Thanksgiving. I think it'd be interesting. Although I suppose technically the sin nature has to have passed from them to us directly. The real problem is our first parents. It's Adam and Eve. Now, we don't know much about what Adam and Eve look like, do we? But since we descended from them, we can deduce a little bit. For instance, we can be pretty sure that they didn't have antenna like a grasshopper or compound eyes like a fly because we don't have antenna like a grasshopper or compound eyes like a fly. But just as every single solitary one of us has inherited our human DNA from our first parents, so too have we inherited their sin nature. The fall that we just looked at, the sin that led to God expelling Adam and Eve from Mount Eden, that sin nature has been transferred to us. The Apostle Paul makes this clear to us in the fifth chapter of his letter to the Romans. He says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that would be Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. Paul is telling us here that none of us is able to overcome sin. It is truly in our nature. None of us have clean hands or a pure heart. All of us have lifted up our souls to what is false or sworn deceitfully. And what Paul tells us here, we all know this intuitively, don't we? We've experienced this in our own hearts. Even those that are far from God know this. For God has implanted this knowledge of right and wrong deep within us. The only thing more certain and sure than the fact that God has planted this compass right living deeply within our hearts is the fact that we will certainly and surely fear off course. C.S. Lewis, in his masterful book, Mere Christianity, said it much better than I ever could. He said, These then are the two points I want to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way. And secondly, that they do not in fact behave that way. <laughs> but a lot of us try. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They'd been giving the rules to live by from God and the smoke and the fire on Mount Sinai. They knew what to do, and they tried so hard. They were so, so diligent in following the letter of the law. For instance, they would even divide up the mint that they grew in their gardens and gave a tenth of it to the Lord. But it wasn't enough. Their hearts were just too eaten up with the sin nature, our sin nature. And like so many of us on the outside, they look clean, but their hearts were not pure. Look at what Jesus, by the way, as we do this, think about if he sounds more like the Old Testament God that the heretic Marcion was so set against. Look at what Jesus had to say about the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. I can't speak to any of you out there 
who've tried to keep clean hands and a pure heart with a sin nature and a fallen world. But I know that these guys were trying a lot harder than I ever was. And you can see just how amazingly far they fell from the mark. I love the way that Spurgeon describes it in the obligatory, obligatory Spurgeon quote that Matt requires. True religion is heart work. We may wash the outside of the cup and the platter as long as we please. But if the inward parts be filthy, we are filthy altogether in the sight of God. For our hearts are more truly ourselves than our hands are. Our hearts are more truly ourselves than our hands are. The pure in heart shall see God, but all others are blind bats. Stone blindness in the eyes arises from stone in the heart. Dirt in the heart throws dust in the eyes. Isn't that beautiful? Convicting. So who can do this? Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord and stand in his holy presence? We've already seen that we don't meet the criteria that David lays out. None of us do. So who can do this? Well, this may bring to mind another time when a question like this was asked. There was no one able to satisfy the requirements of holiness. That was back in the royal heavenly throne room scene of Revelation 5, where John was despairing that there was no one found worthy to open the scroll. There was no one with clean hands and a pure heart. But then, reading from verse 5, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's it. That's our Savior. It's Jesus Christ, Son of God, taking on human form, the Lamb of God, living a perfect life with clean hands and a pure heart and dying the death of a sinner in our place. Jesus Christ offered his life and he bore our sins so that we, be, we could be counted among those with clean hands and a pure heart. By his death, he ransomed us. Now, earlier we looked at Romans 5, where Paul was describing the way that sin entered the world through the first sinners, our parents, Adam and Eve. But that was just the beginning of Paul's point, because just a few verses later, he shows how one man's perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, gave us life. If the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? For if, the trespass, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Made righteous. That's us. Through Jesus Christ, we can be made righteous. Paul says it again in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, paying for our sin, God views us as righteous, as having clean hands and a pure heart, ready to climb the mountain, ready to see the face of God. 
Now, the occasion for writing this psalm, Psalm 24, is unclear. But many believe that it was written to celebrate the return of the Ark of the Covenant, its arrival from Jerusalem after being away for many, many years. Scripture tells us that the Lord Almighty was enthroned between the two gold cherubim on the Ark. So as the Ark arrived in some way, so did God himself, the King of glory. And listen to how this celebration of the arrival of the Ark and the King of glory is described in 2 Samuel 6. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Sounds like quite a parade, doesn't it? But many also view Psalm 24 as prophetic pointing to Christ, perhaps in several different occasions. Look with me and see the way this last section of the psalm, verses 7 to 10, point to Jesus. Perhaps as our Lord was riding in on the young donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, you would have heard the people shouting, Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Or how about is our risen Lord, recently having hung on the cross to redeem our sins, having conquered death by walking out of the grave, as he ascends from this earth, taken up before their very eyes, don't you know that the heavenly hosts were celebrating his arrival at the right hand of the Father? Saying, lift up your heads, you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. And on that day... When everything is set right, the day when Jesus returns as king, the day when there is no more valley of the shadow of death, that day that marks the beginning of our eternity, when we will begin to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, on that day we too will dance madly like David and all of Israel celebrating our king, our savior, who's died for our sins, thereby making our hands clean and our hearts pure and allowing us to boldly ascend that heavenly mountain to see the face of God. Listen to the author of Hebrews as he describes the mountain that we believers in Christ will ascend, climbers with clean hearts and a pure, uh, clean hands and a pure heart only because of the shed blood of Christ. And listen as he compares it to the mountain facing those with unclean hands and impure hearts who do not know Christ. Two very different mountains. Even my Bible has a heading under this section of chapter 12 called the mountain of fear and the mountain of joy. From Hebrews chapter 12, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further words be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous, made perfect to Jesus. Now, in this tale of two mountains, both these mountains represent a very, very real reality. And as much as the heretic Marcion wished it were not so, There is a mountain that represents judgment, darkness, sin, 
and death. A mountain where the holy God is eternally separated from those with unclean hands and impure hearts. And if that is you this morning, if you know that despite your best efforts, you remain separated from God because of your sin, please turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Let him wash your hands and clean your heart. Let today be the day of your salvation. I love the way Dane Ortland makes this contrast, although he fails to mention any mountains, which would have been very nice. Um, for those not in Christ, this, is the, this life is the best it will ever get. For those in Christ, this life is the worst it will ever get. Read that again. For those not in Christ, this life is the best it will ever get. For those in Christ, this life is the worst it will ever get. For those of us with clean hands and a pure heart, absolutely not because of who we are or what we've done, not in the least, but only because of the faithful work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the finished work of Christ on the cross. For us, let's take encouragement from the fact that even the best days in this life are the worst it's going to get. Let's be encouraged by the mountain in our future, for there will be a day when Mount Eden will be restored, a day when we will march through those everlasting doors and those heavenly gates to that paradise mountain of God in a loud, joyful, dancing processional. Take encouragement, Christian, as the Apostle John describes in Revelation 21 and 22, where our future lies, and listen for the echoes from Mount Eden. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And in chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning as the God of creation, the God of power and might and majesty. Father, the God whose power and might and majesty we can't even comprehend. We worship you as holy, as perfect, as righteous, and other. And Father, we acknowledge this morning and confess our need for a Savior. So Lord, we gratefully cling to and celebrate Jesus, He who knew no sin but became sin for us, cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts. And we look forward to that day when all will be made right, when our faith shall be sight, when the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll. And until that day, Lord, fill us with your Spirit, encourage us, strengthen us, guide us. So in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.